Podcast 47, Review of Gaia's Garden, Chapter 5. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right, chapter five of Gaia's Garden. So it's just me and Jocelyn this time. I I couldn't get Dave on the line. I don't know. We took a long break between chapters, and he might have forgotten. So uh, chapter five, catching, conserving, and using water. Yeah. This was an excellent chapter, I thought. Well, yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. Before we get into it, I I should point out that Toby uh, sent me an email, and uh, he said he was able to listen to our first podcast on Gaia's Garden. So this will be the the third. Um, So the first one was the forward and then plus chapters one, two, and three. And then the second one was just chapter four. And so um, we'll see how long this one goes. But I think this one will be a long one because there's so much to talk about. But uh, Toby sent an email and he was was concerned that uh, we were including stuff about uh, the first edition of, of his book. And, and he kind of felt like, oh, everything's an updated. Don't be working from that. Look, we can, we can get you a copy, all right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of thinking, like, all right, let's say, let's say that he got me another copy of the new edition, or I ran out and bought one, or whatever. I don't know. It just seems like it's kind of wasteful. I mean, we. Uh, well, he likes that it has a whole new chapter in the second edition. So, and and 80 more pages. He said, right? Yeah. So lots more content. Yeah. So. So we want to clarify that I've been working off the second edition, so was Dave, but you still had your first right. edition copy. I have the old, yeah. my old moldy copy. So, I wonder if I ever got him to sign anything in it. I don't think I did. No, no he hasn't written anything in it. Mine's signed. Here's a signed. Oh, look at that. Right there. Toby loves you more than me. <laughs> He's got favorites. I took his class. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, I, I kept forgetting to bring my book. But um, uh, Okay, water. Well, I think I think an important thing is is like while I'm reading from the first edition, uh, I think one important thing that Toby may be overlooking is that since he published the first edition in 2000, then um, uh, I think it says I, I don't know. To me, when I read the first edition, knowing it's published in 2000, I think that it reflects especially well on Toby that 11 years ago these are the things that he was advocating, which now we all know to be awesome and and so uh, uh, on the one hand you've got the latest information that Toby has put out and at the same time I've got the older information which has all these familiar names in it because he keeps citing and here's what Tom Ward does and here's what Penny Livingston does and so all these names that are like you know in the permaculture world uh, you know household names uh, Toby was writing about 11 years ago Right, and, and which also, you know, is a shout out to those folks who are in his book. And so yeah. they all get, you know, credit for. Well, while we're all learning that this is so spectacularly awesome, it's like, oh no, here are the people that were like way ahead of their time. And so um, I think that there's a benefit to looking at both. Plus, you know, books are just they just fill up my bookshelves for the most part, and it's not like I read them all every day. It just seems kind of like a waste to just 
have them sitting there waiting for me to look at them. Well, and just a quick aside, some libraries might only have the first edition, not the second edition. Or, you know, right. people who want to get them from the library, so they're not filling up their own bookshelves. So. The second edition is better, mm-hmm. but the first edition is uh, history. Well, and, <laughs> a and, historical reference. And it's still packed with fabulous information, too. Right. So, right. Um, now, on this chapter, my chapter is 18 pages long, and your second edition chapter is... 25. 25. So you added something in there. Right. And we did a quick scan through this morning trying to see uh, if it was content or pictures, and, and I think we both read the same content. It might be just the layout and pictures that made it um, pages longer. But um, the first thing he stops about, if he stops about, he talks about is the five-fold path to water wisdom. He talks about five um, water-conserving methods and their benefits, right? Right. So I, I had five in my list, too. Yep. So it's basically having rich, rich soil with lots of organic matter, right? Right. And, and, and that's, that the was, first that, that's the first one. And I think that, that we have a demonstration video of that where I have a video of Brian Kirkliet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think the video is named something like Equisetum or something, but basically he was using um, horsetail run through a blender uh, and spraying it on the leaves of his squash plants, and he was ending up with these flawless squash plants in August when, when all the other squash plants I was seeing were, like, covered in mildew. Here in the Northwest, yeah. Yeah. That's a big problem. And, and uh, at the same time, in that video, at the very beginning of the video, then I'm eating blueberries, some of his blueberries, which were fabulous, and and talking about how he hasn't watered this garden at all, and it was in August, and everything was green and lush, and and those um, plants were just so flawlessly perfect, and the blueberries were so incredibly delicious, and I think a big part of what adds flavor is to not irrigate, and and which is basically and and the thing that he was leaning on, the thing that was making it so he didn't have to water was that his soil was three feet deep, his topsoil, rich, rich topsoil, three feet deep. And by having that, he did not have to water at all. And he'd gone a couple of months with almost zero precipitation. Yeah, which is typical. Um, so I just want to list the five right, methods right, right. real quick okay. just so, so listeners can follow what we're going to go through. So the high organic matter content, the deep mulching is number two. Locate plants according to water needs is number three. Dense plantings is number four so that the leaves are shading the ground. And number five is soil contouring. So, the, um, and he goes into detail on that. You know, you were talking about this organic matter in the soil and there was uh, a section in here that really stood out to me. He, uh, Toby writes, research shows that soil with as little as 2% organic matter can reduce the irrigation needed by 75% when compared to poor soils having less than 1% organic matter. 
I just think that's amazing. <laughs> I, yeah, that's that's huge. That's yeah. huge. And yeah. and I circled that part in my, my Thank you. same same exact little quote. Um, yeah. Because that's just so good. Yeah. 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 That's, that's that, a huge I, thing. Well, and and I think that's a part that's overlooked I, I, too often. Anyway, um, so then so we talked about that, and then the deep mulching was a big big part of holding water. Well, now, before you move away from okay. your list of five things, right? then I, I want to point out that, okay, A, I've given this, I've got a, a presentation, one of the eight or so presentations on permaculture I pack around on my laptop, and one of them is replacing irrigation with permaculture, which is effectively uh-huh. what this chapter is all about. Right. Now, uh, now I'm, I'm a little bit of a zealot in a different way, which Kelda Miller is always um, upset with me about, but he, here Toby goes Later, he goes into, like, you know, uh, catching rainwater off of the roof and stuff, which Kelda's a big fan of. Kelda Miller, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, is a permaculture instructor in the Tacoma and Olympia, Washington area. Right. And, yeah. and she has strong passions. Yeah. Which are different from mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and that's okay. We can all have different passions. <laughs> um, and, and Kelda's a friend, and I, and I want to support her. At the same time, I want to express my passion. Sure. Maybe hers that they're lined up with mine. But the key is, is that at some point in time, now we went. I went and I made a, a podcast with Jack Spierko, which basically uh, was an attempt to try and convey. Jack Spierko is with the Survival Podcast. Right. Yeah. Uh, dot com. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and uh, uh, he's got a much larger audience than I have. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I tried to do. I did a podcast with him where we talked about replacing perma, replacing irrigation with permaculture. Um, and somewhere around the same time, I kept thinking, oh, I need to make an article, and I keep not doing it. But I, what I did do is I started a thread out of Permies uh, last March. And um, I went and I listed the, the, the 16 things that I mentioned in my um, uh, uh, presentation. That so, so Toby's got five. He has a list of five. Uh-huh. And so I list 16. Uh-huh. And I'm, I imagine that, you know, the one, the extra 11 are actually slight variations of his five, really. It's, when he thinks of his five, they're probably a lot richer. Well, and he goes into other details later, too, besides these five. This is just the top five at the beginning of the chapter, and then he goes into some of these others. But so what's the name of this thread, and which form is it in? Replacing, uh, so the thread is called Replacing Irrigation with Permaculture. It's in the Permaculture Forum of the Permaculture Forums. Right. So it's, it's, the, main, it's the main forum. And um, uh, so just real quick, the list starts with number one is Hugu Culture, which I think, you know, we talked a little bit, at, uh, Toby mentioned it earlier in his book already. Um, and, and I think that's the one that most people can wrap their heads around the easiest. It's just, uh, and I don't know which one, I guess it falls into rich soil on in his list there. The high organic matter. High organic matter in the soil. And so basically you, you create such an, a massive pocket of organic matter. If you make a hugu culture bed that's six feet tall, seven feet tall, then eventually it'll shrink down to something like uh, four feet tall, maybe even three and a half feet tall. Um, but uh, uh, it'll be so loaded with organic matter that it'll it'll be a massive reservoir of, of water for your plants. 
Um, and so that's an that's an easy one that's very very well aligned with urban stuff because a lot of people are like find like they're taking the wood from their yard and and putting it into the garbage or into the green waste bin or whatever uh, they're they're getting rid of it they're having when they, when the arborists come they they haul it all away or whatever and and so uh, here this is like something that you know it's easy to do costs you nothing uh, and and at the same time I think it's it's uh, uh, twenty times Times better than your best rooftop catchment system, uh, and so uh, I put who culture number one. Is that where you disagree with Kelda? Yeah, I mean that's pretty much it. I mean I really think that permaculture should is about well, I mean like you know, granted the big permaculture book, which really kind of defines what it is, it mentions you know rooftop water catchment stuff, and and I really think you know what if you go out there and you do it right, you don't need any rooftop water catchment. And stuff and and with with who culture alone and and, and, and Toby's book is dominantly um, urban yeah. as opposed to rural although Sepp Holzer of course very rural and he doesn't I'm not aware of him using any rooftop catchment stuff um, and and most of the stuff that he's growing is out there in such a place where it's like he's got stuff that wants fossil water but it doesn't have like it's far away from any water he uses a lot of hugel culture tons of hugel culture so my list goes hugel culture number one number two is polyculture three is trees four is mulch so there's one of toby's is mulch the polyculture could be sort of related to dense plants planting planting true mm-hmm. true um five raise humidity for more morning dew i don't know if that's part of his list but he does mention it later in the chapter right um key line which he doesn't mention so that would be covered in depth in P.A. Yeoman's work. Um, terraces, so which would fall under way. soil contouring. He's yeah. got soil contouring. Yeah. So, uh, and I've got swales as number nine. Number eight is to reduce wind, which he doesn't list, but it's like when you're in an urban environment, it's not as big of an issue. Right. You, you probably have plenty of buildings that are blocking a lot of the wind anyway. Number ten is is less transplanting, more seed starting, which he doesn't go into. Uh, Eleven is tap-rooted species, which he doesn't go into. Not in this chapter. No, not in this chapter. True, true. Number twelve, he doesn't mention at all paddock shift grazing. And and, uh, I was recently mentioning in a previous podcast about how that is such an important thing. We've got some awesome videos about how that is um, reversing desert and, and of course, but paddock shift grazing is something that you generally don't do in an urban environment, but a lot of people are. They're getting their chickens, and they're setting up paddocks in their teeny tiny yards. goats. Right, that's right. Laisha Bailey has that's goats it. in her urban, and she does paddock shift. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should stop by her place and take, make a video of that. It's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, number 13 is DuPonds. So, um, do I even have regular ponds in here somewhere? I'm sure I do. Don't I have like, 
Well, raise humidity for more morning dew. That would include, I think, ponds. Right. Maybe five and 13 should be combined. Um, because, well, so anyway, dew ponds are going to basically be ponds that have no water going in or out. And so basically, their dew ponds are effectively um, a swale. So maybe they should be included with swales. <laughs> but the idea is they're designed to puddle and have water and, and then have a, a spot of water. And you might you might try and direct water that, that lands on your property to a dew pond for when it rains, the dew pond will fill. 14 is stacked rocks, which he kind of talks about a little bit at the end of the chapter. Well, he talks about it in the mulching section. He talks about mulching with rocks and how the, the rock mulches can collect moisture so um, and, and be cooling at the same time. And then when the hot, humid air goes through the cool rocks, it can collect moisture. Right, water condenses. So he talks about that in the, in the mulching section. Number 15 I have is edges, which he doesn't quite say edges, but he talks about things that are edgish. So like when he's creating lots and lots of swales, in a way he's creating a lot of different edges. And he adds a lot of, he talks about adding a lot of uh, different bumps and things to land and reshaping it. So that's, and that's basically one way of creating a lot of edges. But um, in my presentation, I talk about the edges and how um, uh, basically we want to do is end up with some spots that are wetter than others and because some plants want more water than others and so uh, everything tends to work out um, and finally number 16 which, which he talks about is one of his items I got down shade Does he, I think that would fall under his dense plantings yes. okay yep yep so just different you, you did have some additional items that he didn't particularly cover right here but it but it dovetails nicely oh and then at the beginning of it at the beginning of the thread I talk about uh, leads to other similar threads. One is creating a creek and a dry gully. Um, and so we, we talk about how it's done and uh, uh, and how people have done it. Uh, and and then there's a, one of the suggestions is the, the, the little 30-minute animation called The Man Who Planted Trees, which basically is a demonstration, include the demonstration of creating a creek and a dry gully, even though it's fiction. The, uh, you know, how how he goes about doing it is fact. And, and right, I thought it was based on a true story. I mean, the, yeah, I think I've, I, I've had uh, two or three people say, "No, it's not," but mm-hmm. no, I'm I'm pretty sure it is based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thread of growing tomatoes without irrigation, and another thread called Sepp Holter uses no irrigation. So after he talks about these five methods, are we done with the five methods? Well, let me, let me open up to my notes in the book yeah. here. So I've got a thing uh, that I circled right at the very, very beginning where it says uh, a well-designed garden doesn't have to be nudged and babied and wheedled into health. It spontaneously cycles towards lush and vibrant growth even when the gardener is absent and the skies are cloudless. Right. And that's poetry. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's very good at describing how an ecosystem, if it's a healthy ecosystem, it's much more resilient resilient than, you know, sprinklers on a sterile lawn. There's somewhere in there where he said something about, yeah, sprinklers on a sterile lawn. All right. 
my, the next the next thing that I've got uh, marked, I've got. I mean, I, I've I've kind of marked up a whole bunch of stuff throughout this chapter because it's a it's a really good chapter. Um, he's got a, a a piece that's called "Holding Water in the Soil," and uh, he starts to tell a story. Uh, and uh, in the in in the early phases of her garden is designed, Mary Zemak. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, had envisioned an ornate drip irrigation system. And, and i got to mention this because it seems to me like almost everybody I talk to, that's what they're currently envisioning, just like Mary. Um, uh, a plastic webwork of emitters and spitters and sprayers administered by an impressive control panel. Designer Ben Haggard waved this off, saying it would be an unnecessary expense. He then repeated one of permaculture's mantras, the cheapest place to store water is in the soil. And it, and it seems to me like I just encounter all these people who think that they've got it all figured out and that this is the ultimate. And then the thing that they that they do or they want to do is they want to have uh, this drip irrigation system. Now, granted, from all irrigation systems, drip is the most efficient. Um, well, I want to say possibly the most efficient. I, I think that there are a couple of things that are very interesting that might be more efficient than drip. However, <clears throat> Uh, um, really, yeah. Uh, uh, permaculture, a good permaculture system, has no hoses, has no irrigation system. Now, granted, a lot of this stuff does need a little bit of water to get established. But once it's established, you shouldn't have to water it at all. And there have been a lot of permaculture farms where I visited, uh, including several where they teach permaculture and they're really well known. And I go and I visit them, and they're like, you know, look at my permaculture stuff, and there's hoses everywhere and irrigation lines. And it's like, well, how long has this particular spot been this way? How long have you been doing permaculture in this spot? Eleven years. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, you should have been past using those hoses and stuff, like, you know, after three years. Um, and so, and I didn't, I did not see these things. I did not see hugel culture. I did not see mulching. I did not see anything other than bare soil with um, uh, a drip irrigation system next to it. And it's kind of like, you take away the drip irrigation system, that plant's going to die. Right, that, because the roots are shallow from all that irrigation. Right. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, um, uh, Mark Vandermeer uh, here in the Missoula area. The guy is a brilliant, brilliant man, and he goes out to these um, desolate, de desertified areas, and and his job is to basically bring them back to life, bring them back to greenery. And he tells me all the stories of all the different projects he's worked on, and all the different techniques he's used. And um, but where he's doing this stuff, there there's no possible like you're miles from electricity, miles from any plumbing, and um, and and there's no budget. You got when you're trying to do things on such a massive, massive scale, there's no budget for that kind of stuff. And yet, he brings this stuff back to life. And, and what he does is permaculture. And, and uh, um, anyway, I, 
one one time he was telling me about how he was about to go start a project that was like I don't know like 50,000 acres some massive massive thing and the budget wasn't very big but he needed to re-green this entire area and you know it had to be done with a certain timeline of like you know 8 to 10 years and um, and so he's like trying to come up with a strategy that's going to work and um I mentioned the idea of making uh, what I call islands. And I'm sure smarter people than me have better words than this, but I call them islands. And so basically the idea is, is that rather than trying to re-green the, re-green the whole thing at once, make polka dots all over the landscape of green spots. You know, maybe each spot is a quarter of an acre. Maybe it's um, an acre. So rather than trying, so, so like rather than trying to get all like this 10,000 acres, let's re-green 10,000 acres. Um, instead, let's re-green um, 100 acres. And we'll pick out 100 one-acre plots where we'll go in and 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 green those up the permaculture way, and then those those islands will because you know the way permaculture works, those islands will naturally get bigger uh, year after year on their own. Like the greening the desert videos. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so he was like, uh, "Yeah, I'm going to do that." So I'm sure if he listens to this now, he'll say that never happened. That he's brilliant and awesome, which he is, and that uh, he already knew that, and yeah, or I never said that or whatever, but I was there. Wow. So there's the same part that you circled that I did about the organic matter in the soil reducing irrigation by 75%. Yes, yes. And, and then the next part that I circled is rich soil holds the water that keeps our rivers flowing and our lakes full. And I need to point out, this message is brought to you by richsoil.com, where some <laughs> large obnoxious ass paints your brain with his pontifications on permaculture. Richsoil.com. It's happening now. I just made that up. Not too bad, huh? Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> so rich soil holds the water that keeps our rivers flowing and our lakes full. <clears throat> right. Which he goes on to explain, you know, where does where does all this water that fills our creeks and streams come from? You know, it flows all year long and it's it's just from leaching out from the soil. So it's which is the next part? Which is the next part that I circled? It says, "Sure, the rivers are fed by creeks, but what feeds the creeks? There's no endlessly gushing faucet at the top." That's what I usually say during my presentations, and and now I know where I got it from. I stole it from Toby. <laughs> There's no endlessly gushing faucet at the top. Water slowly seeps out of the humic earth, drop by drop, the drops coalescing into a trickle, the trickles broadening into creeks. Oh, that's just poetry. He he does have some lovely phrases in here. It's it's really enjoyable. So then he goes into contours and um, you know, 
I think uh, Tom Ward provides a lot of classes on um, figuring out contours and earth shaping and stuff. And, and some of this, frankly, is a little beyond my ability to visualize how this works. There's a um, A-frame. He has a little drawing of an A-frame where you make sure you are laying out a swale on contour. And I would, some of this I would have to do instead of read about to kind of really wrap my head around. I don't know why. Plus, I read through it pretty quickly before our podcast this morning. But Well, um, the A-frame thing is something that I understand mostly because my granddad had something very similar. Oh. He, he had um, a piece of one by eight that was about 16 feet long. And then um, on either end of this one by eight were uh, one by fours. So it, it, it looked like, I'm trying to think of how to describe what it looked like, but um, the idea was is that the really long piece of one by eight would be parallel to the ground. Okay. And then on each end was a one by four that would kind of, you know, lift it up off the ground a bit so it's easier to look at. And then strapped onto the middle of the one by eight was a, uh, a little torpedo level. Okay. And then we would use this thing in order to figure out where to put ditches on flattish ground for, for, a, for a ditch irrigation. So we would mark it out, and then we would drive a plow over it, and then we'd have instant ditch. Hmm. And um, we did a lot of flood irrigation that way. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but basically, this A-frame thing is is remarkably similar, only even cheaper and easier because it, it doesn't have a, a torpedo level attached to it, although it is shorter. And so... Instead of having um, a one by eight across the top, then uh, it's it's just um, two sticks that meet at an apex. So I don't know. I've, when I've seen them before, they've been like you know six feet tall or so, maybe maybe five feet tall. And uh, there's a brace at the bottom, so there's really three sticks pinned together to make like a big letter A. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> then uh, you you uh, tie a string onto some sort of weight like a rock and um, uh, if, if the sticks are um, uh, cut to the perfect exact exactly equal length then when on a level surface then the string should cross the horizontal piece of the letter A um, at the exact same point no matter which way you turn it around if the ground is perfectly level and flat so then if the ground is not level then the string is going to move to one side or the other of that center line, and you'll know that the ground is not level. So then, what you try to do is that you'll so then what, you, what you'll do is you'll um, uh, move this around to determine uh, where is the contour line on a hillside, and um, and so since you you'll you'll just keep you'll plant one end of the letter A into the ground, and then you'll move the other end of the letter A up and down the hill until it until the string says that's level. Level, gotcha. And then and then you just keep staking it out and staking it out and staking it out, and then you you've uh, marked out your contour line. Mm-hmm. So wow, crazy simple um, and cheap and, and easy to figure out. Anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, 
you know, and understanding where the contour line um, is a big part of uh, uh, reshaping the surface of land to facilitate permaculture things. Right. And and then he, he talks about digging, um, digging a bit of a trench along the contour line, and that's making a swale. And then the, the downhill side of the trench is, is slightly bermed to help hold hold any water or runoff in that little trench. Right. So effectively, he's created a kind of an edge. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this, this is a, 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 this is swale-ish. Um, this is this is something where um, we've done a bit with uh, people talking about lawns, uh, and it's like, oh, my lawn sucks, and it turns out they have sucky soil. And so what I have them do is go out and dig a hole about three feet deep and then refill the hole with like 30 to 50 percent organic matter plus whatever came out of the hole and um, and then you know pepper their lawn with these things and it, it makes for awesome earthworm habitat so that way the earthworms have a place to go in the wintertime uh, also you know great organic matter so you can get much deeper roots from your grass and other growies and uh, and that kind of thing and there was, was one guy on Permian where he went and did this all over his lawn and he's got before and after pictures and the before was really pathetic and the after was thick, lush grass. I appreciated the detail he went into in explaining the different variances in the the swales. You may want, you know, depending on your soil, your climate, and all these other factors, you may, you know, you may just want little bits here and there. Well, any talks about fish scales, swales, uh, like if you have a bunch of trees that interrupt where you might be doing a longer swale, and, and he discusses putting them closer and farther apart, and, and quite a bit of detail, really. I think um, that's the advantage of reading a book and, and having more detail, whereas in the permaculture design course, a lot of these topics, you just skim over the top of them because there's so much to cover in the design courses. So and, and plus my memory may not be serving me that well, but um uh it it helped to flesh this out to think about, well yeah, some places where there's heavier runfall, heavier rainfall, not runfall, you want the swales to catch that so you're not getting the soil washed out and things like that. Anyway, just lots, right. lots <clears throat> and lots of variations. The lawn one you're talking about? I think, I, you know, this is one thing that his design right there doesn't does that my thing about the pits does not do, the little worm pits. Um, and and that is that, um, uh, and, and, you know, one of the primary functions of a swale is that if you've got water running across the surface, that's usually carrying your awesome soil away. And so um, a good swale is going to keep all your awesome soil on your awesome property. So, um, yeah. Great. Enough about swales? Now, Then he goes on to talk about basically the right plants for the right place. Um, And he lists, he has a table here on useful plants for Mediterranean climates. And 
and he these because a lot of the drought tolerant xeriscape type plants they can't handle wetness in the winter time and and he's talking about all the different regions that they may be really really dry during the summer but they're really wet in the winter so or not really wet but pretty wet and and so that needs more of a mediterranean type plant that can handle the dry in the summer and the wet um so he's which I think is a good point. There's a lot of areas that need that, whereas if they were just strictly xeriscape desert-type plants, they would rot. Do you have that? Yeah, I've got the table, too, but your table has uh, got more columns than mine. I have common name and botanical name. Right, and he just did it double. He oh, you got more. Yeah, oh. it's a longer list. It's a longer so, list, okay. Yeah, so um, he's talking. This is where he actually promotes some native plants because, he, he figures they they have adapted to your region and they've adapted to the water levels and the seasons in your region and they will attract the wildlife that you want um, to help help foster your ecosystem the wildlife is important so he you know even though um, Toby is one who who sometimes challenges all the native plant um, advocates you know in in this case he's he's promoting native plants. well and and I think he, he doesn't I mean he does not say get rid of the native plants right. fuckers those are those are shit right no right. he's not right. he never says that it's, right. it's always it's basically what it is is that there's a group of people that are so adamant that, that anything that's not native has to go oh. that when Toby goes out and he embraces native plants and he embraces and I want to embrace the food plants that I like right. then 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 he catches the ire as, as most permaculture people as anybody who has a garden anybody who has a, a food garden catches the ire of these people well and I, I I don't think there's as many people that say only natives everything else has to go I think where I've encountered a lot of people <laughs> there's an army of them out there right only natives everything else has to go well the ones I think that that I've seen more of, and I don't get around to the different farms and the different horticultural people as much as you do, but the the ones I've seen are more like, well, that's a Douglas fir. You can't cut that down because that's a native tree. And and, and it's... Watch me! <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's not that they don't want the entire place only native, but they're so pro-natives that they really limit their ability to create a healthy ecosystem or create a food-rich, healthy ecosystem because they refuse to cut down a Douglas fir. That's the part where I see it as more of a challenge. So not so much that they're saying, oh, only natives, you know. I'm, I'm encountering tons and tons and tons really? of people that are okay. only natives. Okay. And so it's like, okay, now you're going to, you know, so while while we're standing here looking at the people who are advocating all kinds of things from outside, and all like, what should we do here and stuff like that, most of them are saying we want to eliminate any
anything that's not native. It's going to be only natives. And I'm, and all I can think is, is like, wow, if you want to convert the face of Mount Sentinel to be only natives, I mean, that's going to be like, first, it's, it's going to be millions of dollars to do it. And then it's going to be like a million dollars a year to maintain it. And it's like, what is the benefit there? And then on top of that, that would be almost zero food. I mean, yeah, there would be some edibles up there, but it would, there would be very few. And, and it would be, it would cost millions of dollars. So it's kind of like the price per pound for that native food up there would be tremendous. Right. And so I, I guess I wasn't thinking of restoring wilderness areas or areas that people consider wilderness areas. And, and that's what you're talking about, well, where they're saying well, only native. When we go and we talk about permaculture areas, there's a lot of people that are kind of like, because um, we're talking about we're going to be more aligned with nature and, and stuff like that. We're going to try and use nature's tool set to, to make it so that we do a lot less work and get a lot more food. And um, uh, and then people who are big advocates of native stuff tend to show up to these because it's not too far off from what they advocate. And then they and then basically they get, they get there and then you know they take that opportunity to push what they advocate. And then basically they want to tell permaculture people, no, damn it, stop talking about non-natives. You need to do what I say, which is plant only natives, only native plants. And in the meantime, you know, I really want to find out from these people, what do you eat? And and we talked about this in the previous chapter of Toby's stuff, I believe in a previous pod, right. podcast. Right. Toby's talking about, well, when you do your yard, like these people live in a house somewhere and they have a yard and they've transferred it to all natives instead of planting a garden with the food that they actually eat, then they've just displaced it. They've destroyed native habitat somewhere else in order to be able to provide them with the food that they eat, which I, I never had thought about before, and I don't know how I missed it when reading the book before, but now I'm going, I want I want to put it on a flag, and I want to carry this flag with me wherever I go, and <laughs> wait, and when these people come out and say something about, no, you got to do only native, sort of wave the flag! Look at my flag! Where does your food come from? Yeah. Where does your food come from? Right, right. Yes. Well, so so in this section about plants that are parsimonious with water, Ooh, you have, I don't know if I have a parsimonious bit. Did you have some parts that were... No, nope, I do. Look, plants that are parsimonious with water. Yes. I guess, okay, yeah. Don't you just feel smarter from reading it? Yeah. Okay. So was there anything That's the Mediterranean climate thing, which I thought was a very good point. Yes. And so yeah, I, I thought a lot of it was is that you'll have a mix. You'll have a mix of plants that are kind of thirsty, and you'll have some plants that are not so thirsty and, um, you know, like can tolerate almost no water. And then you'll have some plants that are very Mediterranean-like where they have, like, lots of water in the winter is cool, and then, like, you know, no water in the summer. We can deal with that. So, yeah, I, I thought that was good. Well, and, you know, you quoted the Mary Zemach, um, her first vision of the drip irrigation system. And then um, he refers to that quite a bit in this chapter because where was she, uh, Arizona or New Mexico? She was in a very arid, arid climate, and he describes her garden as incredibly lush and green with all kinds of non-native species growing food and herbs and stuff uh, without irrigation. 
If you pod people really need to know where Mary is, buy Toby Hemingway's book, Gaia's Garden, and turn to Chapter 5. Because we're too damn lazy to go. Jocelyn's freaking out and pouring through every page. She feels you need to know. So stop looking at that. Make people go buy the damn book. Go buy Toby's book. It's a good book. You should have it already. All right. Moving on to mulching stuff. That's yeah. the next bit. Yeah. And I, I've circled a, a few pieces which I thought were really awesome. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> one was, one warning, mulched soil usually won't warm up in the spring as fast as naked earth. Uh, very good point. And so it's one of those things where it's a little bit of a dilemma where you want to go out and you want to mulch everything and stuff. But um, one of the best strategies of mulch is don't mulch yet. Uh, put it off until about mid-June. Uh, if if you can, for certain things. I mean, you know, having having mulch down too early is better than no mulch. But you know, uh, nature mulches in the fall. Every fall, the trees drop all their leaves. Your your tomato plant dies, and and you know that all that viney leafy stuff becomes mulch. And and uh, you know everything gets mulched in the fall naturally. And so if you work with nature cycles, that's optimal. But if I mean if if the occasion presents itself where you're working with bare soil and you're thinking, I need to mulch this. Maybe um, <clears throat> leave the soil bare until about mid-June. That helps it to warm the soil up and then mulch it. Right. And then I'm reminded of that recent thread on permies that you enjoyed so much where they felt they were not just mulching, but they were composting in place and, and their plants weren't thriving. Was that the name of that thread? And her plants, uh, we think... It's hard to tell. Uh, the the posters plants were kind of oh, yellowish, right? And, right. And lots of other permies responded and said, "Oh well, you know, it could be that you have too much carbon in what you're trying to mulch with or compost in place." And they said, "Go pee on it." <laughs> it was like it was great because there was a bunch of different people who analyzed the situations, asked the right questions. It's like as I'm reading the thread, it's like the the person there's the person asking the question and they posted pictures which is good and then from a visual these people are like looking at it and a lot of people are analyzing the situation and their 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 anal- analysis was awesome and excellent and then uh, the solutions that they offered were all identical pee on it it's like cost you nothing it's instant because they're ta- some of them were talking about okay for longer term to, to solve this problem here are things that you would do but for now to get that plant back into vibrant health right now, then uh, you need uh, an instant hit of nitrogen. And, and you know, here is a, a way to get it there very, very fast and, and really help that plant out right away. And it was like uh, in, in other forums, people would be all like, I can't talk about that. I can't mention that. Or they're going to say, go out and buy something. Go out and buy Alaska fish fertilizer and put it on there or something like that, but not at permies.com. <laughs> They, that was it was it was an amazing and sure enough that person did exactly that and then posted new pictures showing these plants have just they're like they're like transformed they're they're green and vibrant and lush they they, they started off sickly and sad and pathetic and then boom baby 
baby. They're in business. Yep. What yep. an awesome thread of Permies. I am so proud of this community. <laughs> yeah, well, that just reminded me of mulching because it, 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 she, the poster called it composting in place, but it was really basically mulch, you know, mulching with. Which, which is a Ruth Stout technique. Ruth, yeah. Ruth Stout will lay out uh, hay and straw and stuff, and then she takes her, her kitchen scraps and whatnot, and, and rather than giving them to chickens or critters, which is what I would do, or putting them into a compost pile. She doesn't believe in the compost pile. She just puts it right out there on the hay, mm-hmm. and, and which I think it, you know has its benefits. Right. Well, in, in his section for mulching, um, he, Toby also says, what if your garden's problem is too much water, not too little? Now, that was a huge problem in the Northwest this spring. Uh, endless rain, plants just rotting in the fields. The, the local CSA that I belong to got a late start because their initial plantings rotted. Um, but what he's saying is the same techniques to hold water also help drain out excess water. So, um, which which I thought was a good thing to know because not every place is dry. <laughs> We've just had freaky amounts of water in the Seattle area this spring. Right. And, you know, if you think about it, okay, so as we look out the window here at my place, my backyard is about 80 acres, maybe 65 to 80 acres, um, and currently they've mowed the alfalfa, and, um, and they're, they're living it dry in the sun. But the point I want to make is note how flat it is. It is flat, and it's very flat, to, uh, and it was made that way to facilitate the tractors and stuff that they drive back and forth across those fields. So now um, putting on my uh, uh, glasses of speculation into the past, I imagine that this area was crazy lumpy, lumpy, bumpy, like like um, there would be 20 feet of variation all over this, what is now perfectly flat field. And um, uh, all that lumpy bumpiness gave it all sorts of edge. And and so um, I, I think that uh, um, a lot, and I've even, I've totally forgotten what we were even talking about. We were talking about um, too much water and how mulching so there would be a big, there would be a bunch of spots out there in the lumpy bumpiness that would be very, very dry, and some would be very, very wet. But then the thing is, is that a lot of those bumps would, would, yeah, be regulated because there would be puddles of stinky stuff out there. Uh, you know, basically kind of like natural dew ponds. Um, and then at the same time, there would be parts that would be dry, and then there would be parts in the middle that would be kind of halfway between. And then during the winter, when it's just pouring, pouring, pouring rain, then there'd still be spots that would stay pretty dry all winter long. And then uh, when we get to the droughty, droughty, droughty parts, then um, uh, there'd still be spots that would be dry all summer long. Uh-huh. Or, or be wet. Be wet right. all summer long. Right. Yeah. Right. You'd have lots of... Uh, that's nature. What they have right. out there now, that stuff ter- all uniformly turns brown unless they irrigate it. And they do. They've got one of those big... Um, 
circle irrigation systems uh, where the the, the uh, 20 foot tall irrigation thing goes by my window every few weeks. Yeah. I think it's cool. I like to watch it go by. <laughs> Close all the windows, but... Uh, <laughs> I think it'll come in. Yeah, it'll irrigate my bedroom. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's awesome. I, on the second floor, I'm about... Uh, uh, I, I thought to kind of look up a little bit to see the, you know, the top parts of it, but still. So to, Toby moves on to talk about um, water catchment. So swales are kind of keeping the soil on your property, in your ground, and letting it leach through. You know, he describes actually how it'll leach through under the ground, and that's something I don't think a lot of gardeners think about. We're so um, indoctrined to overhead irrigation, sprinkler and drip irrigation. I don't think we think about how the water seeps through the ground. So this chapter describes a lot of that, and I, I appreciated that. But the water catchment is harvesting and storing rainwater, and that's more off of the roof. All right, but now you're working on a well, so I want to back okay. at the mulch. I've got okay. I've got one more little bit okay. on under mulch that I want to I've, I've marked off and I want to read. Okay. <clears throat> Rocks can also be used for mulches. A mulch of stone may sound bizarre, but in dry country, a rock mulch, one to four inch diameter pebbles a few inches deep, uh, picks up morning dew and condenses it into the soil. During the day, hot air wafts through the cool, dark spaces between the stones. Moisture then condenses out of the warm air onto the chillier rock surfaces and trickles into the ground. In this way, a rock mulch can significantly boost the amount of water that plants receive. Rock mulches also hold heat, helping the soil warm up in the spring and keeping plants toasty on chilly nights. A rock mulch can extend the growing season or help you grow hot weather plants in cool regions. Which I think is a huge part of what Sepp Holzer does. Right. You're right. And we touched on this briefly when you were talking about um, dew ponds and stacked rocks when you were talking about your um, my list. Your list. But, but I think that's another thing. We're so conditioned to think, oh, remove all the rocks from the soil. Remove them. Remove them. And Sepp Holzer is a great example of he loves the rocks in the soil and he maximizes the rocks in the soil and his ponds and talks about why they're there and builds microclimates with the rocks. Right. We, um, it's, I, I think it's a big, big positive, important thing, uh-huh. and um, uh, and I'm glad Toby mentions it. Uh, and I think I think Seth probably uh, goes a little bit more wild with it than Toby. Well, and in the soil chapter in Toby. Toby's chapter on soil, he describes how plant roots exude something that helps um, helps make the minerals from the rocks available. So, right. so that that's a big part that I don't think a lot of just everyday gardeners would think about. True, I, I think there's and, and, and hopefully in this book <clears throat> helps your everyday gardeners come into the world of permaculture very well. Mm-hmm. 
on to, on to the uh, uh, water catchment thing, which is where you're going. Yes. I've, I've got one quick note, uh, which I just thought was interesting. I did not know this. It says um, 40 inches of rain a year, uh, the average for much of the United States. I would have thought it would have been a lot less than that. 40 inches of rain a year is the average for the United States. That is amazing to me. It does seem like a lot, but I, I'm not very familiar with rain, rain, average rainfall for different places. So now I, I know a little bit. So like, for example, um, where you live in yeah. Woodenville, I believe it is about 60. So you're higher than average. But a bizarre thing that most people are probably not aware of is that Seattle, famous for being such a soggy city, gets 30 inches of rain a year less than the national average. Well, and I'd heard that before. I heard that we get less rainfall than New York City, for example. So, um, but it's because we get so much drizzle and we have yeah. so many gray dry days. I, rhododendrons um, are native to the area. I mean, they and they're a shallow-rooted shrub. Um, and, and they're shallow because it's just a constant little drizzle, and, and so they're perfectly suited to that kind of climate. Right. Now, in, in Seattle, while it's less than the average, yeah, yeah it's, there's a huge amount during the uh, fall, winter, and spring where it is these pathetic, drizzly, miserable, on and on and on of right. nonstop, misty, And it's the type of rain wimpy rain. It's the type of rain where an umbrella is more of a nuisance than a help. Other areas when it rains, you want an umbrella because you just get drenched. Umbrellas are just in the way in Seattle. I don't own one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know many people in Seattle that own an umbrella because you're right. It's, it's, it's like just... you, you're not going to stay very much drier with an umbrella. Um, but, the, but the funny thing is in Seattle, for three months, they generally get almost zero rain. Generally, uh, for uh, uh, June, July, and August, usually, I mean, they've, they have in the past gone through, gone for two to three months of like zero precip. And the norm is, is on most years, they'll go a full two months, full 60 days without a drop. It might be more July, August, September then, because June we still have a lot of rain. Usually like the first uh, the, the first couple of week or two of June. They'll be, but it's like uh, there have been times when they've gone about 90 days without a drop. Mm-hmm. And and uh, But usually it's, a, it's, like, it's like 60 days where it'll be not a drop, which people think, oh, it's in Seattle, so they're getting lots of rain all year long. No, no. I, I once visited with somebody uh, who lived in the desert, and they, they took a vacation to Seattle because they just felt like they just needed to go someplace where it was rain, and they went there in the summertime, <laughs> and they were disappointed because it was so dry. It was, it was like sunny and hot every day, and they're like, well, we came here for the rain. What the hell? So um, uh, I, 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 it's really fascinating. And, of course, just uh, if you go just 20 miles to the east of Seattle, the uh, amount of rainfall doubles. And if you go, like, um, 60 to 100 miles to the west of Seattle, you're out there on the Olympic Peninsula, which is technically a rainforest. Yes. And they get, like, something like 200 and. 
60 inches of rain. I don't know what it is. It's something. No, it's, they've got, if you go, out to, if you go out to the whole rainforest, they've got this thing, and it's like, you know, this marks how much rainfall we get, and you're like looking way up in the sky, and there's this thing showing, then that's how much rainfall we get every year, and everything's covered in moss, and it's just, you know, like walking into something from a weird movie, everything's just covered in green moss. Well, they did uh, base those vampire books in Forks, Washington, because <laughs> it has the most rainfall anywhere in the United States. Yeah. Oh. And now Forks is a little tourist Flip. stop for the, all those vampire books. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so water catchment. Um, and I, I was surprised Toby didn't go into uh, his water catchment system very much in this chapter. He went into it a little more in um, the permaculture design course. Um, how he, at his place in Oregon, he had a 5,000 gallon cistern and he collected rainwater off a baked enamel steel roof and that was his entire household water. That was his domestic water. You know, he, he filtered it a bit and drank it, showered in it, cooked with it, um, which which he didn't explain that very thoroughly in this chapter, but he talked, he went through all different types of um, water catchment systems. Some touched on a bunch of them. So um, I one of the things that he said in that section was my uh, my favorite resource goes in the gray water stuff. Right, and that's which is not later. water catchment. Right. Oh, okay. Look at that. You got a whole look at all those pictures. You got. Ooh, I don't have that pretty picture in my edition. Right. Well, and and um, so when he's talking about different ways to store water, there there's um, the rain barrels and other tanks and cisterns. But he but he's also saying you could just use a pond and and he said most people when they try and do kind of a decorative pond in their yard they do a pond liner and then they set all these heavy rocks around the edge of the pond to hold the pond liner and so this pretty picture that you're pointing out is is a diagram showing well actually those rocks on the edge make it so the wildlife can't get to the water a lot of the birds and different critters and things like that they want to get to the edge of the water so you want the this full ecosystem with this wildlife. You want the birds to eat your bugs. You want all of this different stuff. And and so this picture shows uh, a gradual edge to the pond um, and, and a w- different ways to build it so that um, the critters can get to it. It's a design by Earl Barnhart of Great Work Incorporated. Anyway. So yeah, it, that's, um, that's something I think a lot of people don't think of. Yeah, and then there's a picture with Larry Santorio uh, with a pond he designed um, in California. So, and he talks about all the different plants in here. You know, there's a ton of um, edible plants you can do around a pond, which which I think a lot of times when people want a koi pond in their yard, if they're just thinking of the typical suburban landscaping, they're not thinking edibles. They're not. They're just thinking pretty or relaxing. Whatever, but man, this has you know cattails, mints, um, celery, taro, celery, you know, oh, rhubarb. Yeah, and then uh, 
an edible canna. So this is California, so they can grow a lot more. So yeah. Um, then he does go into the gray water. So after he talks about ponds, ponds are really sometimes part of a, a gray water system too. So I think that's pretty cool how he segues into talking about gray water. Um, and he has a really good sidebar on tips for using gray water, which which helps you understand, you know, that it's simple, but there are some things you should really know. You shouldn't put gray water directly on edibles, which I think is a good point. Um, right. I, I think a lot of people, when they get started with their gray water systems, there's, there are a few points that um, they seem to neglect. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, well, I think the first thing is is that he mentions in his gray water section, uh, my favorite resource is Create an Oasis with Gray Water by Art Ludwig, which I, I, I really agree with. I mean, Art, Art, I think, is um, uh, probably one of the, the, the greatest leaders that we have in the permaculture world, and um, I think he's working on a new book um, about composting toilets, which I'm really looking forward to, but um, I, I think um, I think Art's got his head screwed on better than most, uh, and and I, I really like what Art says and how and, and how he goes about his stuff. He, 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 um, when he talks about gray water in his book, it's like let's whip out the micro soap and let's count the number of yucky things in our soil samples and stuff. And so he's talking about how do you test? How do you, let's, let's, <clears throat> let's test. I mean, we don't, we're not going to really know if we're fucking everything up unless we test. So um, we want to make things better than they are now. And the best way to do that is to become familiar with, you know, measuring. Because so many people, it's, it's just a wild-ass guess and they have no idea. So so here's Toby saying, yeah, let's not be putting the gray water onto, say, our carrots, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and and it's like, uh, and some people seem to, to miss that part. They seem to skip over that part. Um, whereas Art Ludwig is kind of like, uh, you know, let's go measure it. Yeah. Should we be freaked out about this? Should we not care? You know, let's measure it. Well, Toby describes how gray water contains, you know, little bits of debris. And I don't think we need to explain the difference too much to people between gray water and black water. Maybe we should. uh, Black water is poop. Yeah, toilet water. It's got poop in it. Yeah. (laughs) And gray water is usually from sinks, showers, and laundry. So, so it'll have. It might have little bits of food. It have urine in it. it Gray water can have urine in it. Okay. So, it, but it typically has soap. Soap is the biggest concern. And, and Toby describes you shouldn't use chlorine or borax type stuff in your gray water if you're using it on grow. Excellent point. Yeah. So, but, white water is going to be the stuff that you drink. You know, and, and so, so gray water. I mean, in the showers, um, you know, you, you're going to have people that are um, washing their nasty selves, and and they're going to, um, they're 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 most likely is going to be little poopy bits. 
that they're going to end up going down the drain. And let's keep that in mind. Um, and then um, uh, sometimes people wash their uh, wash their laundry, and and hey, maybe that underwear had a speed streak in it. And um, so hey, that's that's. And you know what? I think we we need, and, and I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, we need to maintain an appropriate level of concern. You could call it fear if you want uh, about poop. And and there's a reason why uh, we have this fear. And, I, and, and while uh, uh, Jenkins' book tries to say stop being poopophobic, I want to say no, be poopophobic. And 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 so gray water is going to contain some of that. And so let's be mindful of that and manage it appropriately. Right. Um, now you know gray gray water systems are awesome. And and I think Toby's points are really good. And even in his book uh, from 11 years ago, he makes a very in uh, tips for gray water. It looks like he may have expanded on it a bit in your edition. Um, but I circled um, uh, three of the points that he made, which I think a lot of people. People generally seem to forget, and, and you mentioned the one already, avoid watering food plants directly with untreated gray water. Right. And, and he's saying, nope, run it through run it through plants and bacteria and that whole ecosystem that loves to deal with that stuff. I mean, if you keep putting gray water there, you'll get more and more of the beasties that like to munch on it, and um, then, then other beasties will munch on them, and it'll go through, you know, eight levels of indirection before it finally ends up somewhere where you might use it on something that you're going to eat. Um, smart, smart, smart. He also talks about... Um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, in climates where the ground freezes more than a few inches deep, gray water systems may not work in the winter. Um, here's a good idea to be able to divert gray water back to the sewer septic systems until spring thaws. Um, so many people just don't connect with that one. I mean, even in your area where it doesn't get all that cold, still all those plants and things go dormant all winter long, and they are not processing that stuff. And all the bacteria and stuff are often, most of them are dormant or at least slowed down to almost a crawl and um, are not really uh, working for you. And um, and so then where does it go then? Well, it goes into the groundwater. And a lot of that stuff is something we really don't want to be going into the groundwater. Uh, although, um, and basically that's what a septic system does uh, with its drain field. Um, but I'm I'm thinking that, um, you know, uh, there, there's several important points there. I mean, one is, is to keep in mind that where you'll have a neighborhood where they have all kinds of septic systems with drain fields, why do you suppose they go in and say, no. That's no longer acceptable. That's damn nasty. We now hereby require you by law to connect it to our brand new sewer system coming into your neighborhood. And and if your septic system was safe all year long, why would they do that? Unless, of course, it's because they want to make nasty money or something like that, But which I don't think is the case. I think I think there is a legitimate reason, even though to septic system... To protect the groundwater. Yeah. yeah, to protect the groundwater. And those and those septic systems are fouling your groundwater. And, and so... Um, Let's come up with better systems, and frankly, I think that there is a much, much better way, and let's let's explore that.
that. Um, and that's that's kind of where he's going. And so the thing about the freezing water is important. I got one more bit from his tips that I circled that uh, I, I want to share. Um, and this and you kind of you touched on this for a moment. And and this is this is a concern that I have, and um, uh, and I and I don't have a good way of mitigating it because his solution sucks too. And um, and I think I I can't think of a, of a way to make it better. Now is be careful of what you put in a gray water system. Chlorine bleach, and I really don't. I really hope that nobody listening to this podcast uses chlorine bleach ever. There are better things. There are less. And, and he talks about boron and the form of borax, which is you know from what little I can recall is about. 300 times safer to use and if you're talking about mold mildews and odd smells then um, it's probably about um, five times more effective than bleach Um, uh, but anyway he's saying it shouldn't go in gray water system he's saying um, uh, be careful what you put in your gray water system chlorine bleach detergents containing boron or borax and some household chemicals in the solvents are toxic to plants and should never go in a gray water system. Hydrogen peroxide based bleaches are safe to use. If you must use chlorine or boron, install a diverter valve so that your laundry outlet can be temporarily sent to the septic tank or sewer that is treated as black water. All right. Um, yeah, sending it off to a sewer system, mm, okay, you know, uh, it's legally all right and stuff like that. Um, however, <clears throat> let's think about this for a moment. Bleach, of course, is, I mean, the reason why bleach works so well is it's an outright poison. It's just pure and simple poison. And and that's why people like to use it, because, oh, there's little germies on my stuff. I'll cover it in poison, and I'll try not to get it on myself or suck it in or drink from the bottle, because, you know, it's poison. Um, and... Uh, uh, Borax, on the other hand, uh, is so much better at, at, at treating mold, mildews, and odd smells, and it's it's far less toxic. It's don't get me wrong, it is toxic. It's it's a uh, it's just got a low toxicity. Uh, um, I wouldn't eat it either. Um, but uh, um, my concern is is like okay, he's saying send it off to your septic tank. No, <laughs> that's not really good either because you've got all your little bacteria in there that are trying to, to eat your poop. And um, no, don't don't be uh, uh, sending you know stuff down there that's going to kill your little bacteria that are down there working hard for you. Uh, it, it's like Seth, Seth Holzer's thing um, uh, where he talked where it was about the blackberries and and the people and and how do you get rid of the blackberries? Well, you put a strand of electric at, around it and then you put pigs in there and then you got the vegan saying, uh, "Well, I'm not going to raise pigs, so what do I do?" And Seth Holzer says, "Then you must do the pigs' work." Well, in this case, if you go out and you kill all those little bacteria, then you must do the bacteria's work. And that's when you're going to go and pay somebody to come out with a great big pump and pump all your turds out of your septic tank. And and um, at the same time, what about, I mean, if you've killed all your little bacteria and stuff, 
how is that drain field thing going to work? You know, because the whole idea of the drain field thing is, is that you're oozing it into the soil and all the little bacteria are going to eat all the little poopy bits and suddenly you've killed them all. Now what? Now you've got like damn nasty water and you got to have something to come out once a year to pump out your septic tank. Right. And you've told me that there's people that manage their septic so much they never have to have it pumped. They manage it right. so well. Yeah. Exactly. And so now I'm, I'm, you know, I don't have a solution for this. And I, I, I do think that, you know, we should collectively, you know, ponder and figure something out and, and have a bit of an ulcer about it. Uh, first, stop using the fucking bleach. There's just no call for it. I cannot think of a situation where, it's, where, where bleach is the best solution. There are far better alternatives. Uh, next up, okay, so you're going to use a little borax once in a long while. Um, uh, you know, hydrogen peroxide doesn't, you know, hydrogen peroxide is good stuff, and, but it's like, you know what, I, I don't think hydrogen peroxide even quite cuts it. So um, so now what do we use? Um, well, on the whole, I think um, this chapter is really informative for people. I have to admit, when I first heard about composting toilets or peeing outside or, you know, trying to divert your household water from a septic system or from a sewer system, I thought, wow, why would you go to that extra effort? You know, it just seemed like... but. When you think about it, as Toby describes in this chapter too, you know, you, this, um, he talks about all the energy and ickiness involved in sewer treatment. He doesn't really go into the concerns and problems with septic tanks. Uh, you know, the idea that that stuff can leach into the groundwater, the idea that your septic, I mean, your sewers, that water goes to is pumped way out to a treatment plant and then the treatment plant does all of its nastiness and energy intensive treatment and then this water that's supposedly clean gets pumped into your local rivers, lakes or um, in this area the Puget Sound yeah. you know and, and so that clean as we're able to measure it at right. this time based on our limited knowledge of what does clean mean right right and so the idea uh, I, I think this is going to be a new idea for a lot of people. Maybe not for permies folks. They're pretty savvy to this. But for a typical suburban gardener to read this and think about wow, that is a waste. That is energy intensive. You know, why should you know all of this water that can be useful and used in my own property when there's, you know, when I need water to irrigate or I need water for my soil, for I, I don't know. He explains that really well. And then he um, he talks, too, about, you know, even though we're talking about toxics in the gray water, he, he, he doesn't talk about poop in the gray water or things like that, but he talks about skin and other things in the gray water that can feed soil life and that it's food. Um, and so he talks about capturing that and putting that through this filtering system. And then you're... You're creating this self-sustaining ecosystem if you're keeping it and dealing with it and filtering it and managing your own waste streams and recapturing your waste streams. He's talking about how much richer of an ecosystem that is, and and he says here. 
I've seen gray water systems that have quickly and dramatically boosted the fertility and lushness of a yard. There's something magical in creating these simple cycles as if nature recognizes the service and showers us with gifts in return. So even though we're talking about the ickiness, there's there's a huge benefit to capturing this stuff too, which can have true huge benefit. I I think that um, it's important. I I mean for the for the projects that I'm currently working on to try and get land and get things set up and stuff like that, I'm thinking that I'm going to build a wolf body, mm-hmm. and that um, I want to set up something where there is a greenhouse that um, and I'm not a big fan of greenhouses for food, but this would be a greenhouse where the function of the greenhouse is to basically support something junglish to support to to filter out the uh, the gray water to process gray water year round year round and and so um, uh, in theory part of it would be to uh, it would I, I would suppose a, a teeny tiny amount of oxygen um, would would also be produced but you know that's like a I'm not a, the, the the main thing is is to properly uh, process the gray water all year long is what is what I'm thinking of, um, and at the same time, uh, now, now we're talking about sewage systems, um, the Missoula sewage system, and, and Mark Vandermeer plays some small role in it. Uh, I don't I don't fully understand you know all the details, but I, I really you know there's a, I got an email from a guy about it. I should go and visit with him, but um, uh, in Missoula, their sewage system there, then they've started a new program where they're taking all the sewage sludge out of the system rather than dumping it into the river or trying to break it down enough to push it out into the river or whatever they're going they've, they've, they've got like this big plot of acreage somewhere and they've planted it full of uh, um, a collection of like cottonwoods and poplars and, mm-hmm. and basically poop beast trees right. we've, we've got a thread out at uh, permies.com called poop beast and poop beast uh, comes from actually Jimmy Pardo started the term poop beast he right. made a drawing of uh, a container, uh, shipping container uh, design with an outhouse, and at the bottom of the outhouse was this little beast, and it was this little arrow pointing to it saying, Poop Beast. <laughs> we <laughs> don't like, all the poop. Kind of like from the Flintstones or something. <laughs> uh, they always had like little dinosaurs underneath the sink that was your garbage disposal. <laughs> so here's the Poop Beast. But there are some tree species, most tree species, when they... And Jimmy Pardo does the music for your videos. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And he sent me, he sent me another one recently. I got a I gotta work that into something and stuff. But anyway, um, the uh, the thing is, most tree species, when they encounter something poopy, they kind of like move away from it. Like their roots don't like that's too hot. That's too much. And then they kind of, their roots, you know, go away from the poopy stuff. Um, other tree species like willows and poplars and cottonwoods and some other, uh, lots of plants, uh, there, there's some, some plants, uh, some tree species, some bush species, some plants, some plants, they, um, they're like, Oh, yeah, baby. Give me some of that. Ah, poop. Love it. Just, you know, chomp, 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 chomp. The roots go in. They just put a straw right in it. (laughs) You know, they're like, that's the good stuff. So uh, um, what the city of Missoula is doing is they're they're taking this sludge, and they're going to each spring go out and put this out on these trees. These trees will grow massive and fat because they're just... 
drinking it in, eating it up, just gobbledy, 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 gobbledy. And, and we're also talking about it not going into the groundwater, not going into compost, which would then, you know, um, but I think yeah. this is this is the best way That's for this excellent. stuff to be treated. And, and, you know, this is what I advocate for people that are using composting toilets and the like, is um, because Jenkins says, oh, just go out your compost pile, put it in the middle of the compost pile, and you're going to compost it, you know. In the meantime, it's like there's nothing below this compost pile, nothing above the compost pile so rain comes and rinses all the pathogens into your groundwater and I'm thinking bad idea yeah but if you were to um, uh, do a barrel based compost system or a bucket based compost system or whatever and let it sit for a year or so and then the following spring go and put it onto some cottonwoods poplars or willows they'll just eat it up that spring and into the summer and then it's totally been consumed and dealt with right right um, so and I feel like we're we're spending a long time on this chapter but I think there's so much that's worthwhile that it's it's a good thing I I just wanted to mention that Toby says the simplest way to reuse uh, gray water is to have a dishpan in your sink and then just collect your dishwater and then take that and dump it outside. He said, you know, that's that's like the simplest way. And it reminds me of something a friend of mine started doing um, during a water conservation thing for Earth Day. Janice Annable um, decided to figure out how to capture some gray water in her suburban home. And every time they shower, they just shower with the drain plug plugged. And, and then the toilet's right next to the shower. To flush the toilet, they scoop the water from the bathtub and flush their toilet with it, which I just thought was really cute. It's a little more work than the dishpan even, but but she liked the idea of reusing the gray water instead of using potable water to flush your toilet. That is, that is a very good point. Yeah. That is a very good point. And, and so there's some very simple, I mean, I think the dishpan thing alone is super Crazy easy, and 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 you're already going at your garden to water stuff, and the dishpan stuff is like loaded with all kinds of yummy bits. Yeah. And and like Toby mentioned somewhere along, the way, you can get soaps that are going to be, you know, really well aligned with your garden. Right. I don't know which ones or anything, but I I think that uh, I'm curious to to learn more about those soaps. I think I even heard an old time remedy, you know, of uh, there's a certain plant that tends to get some kind of mold or mildew, but if you poured your soapy dishwater on it, that was the remedy for it. But most of the time, Toby does mention in here, most of the time you don't want the soap on your plants, directly on the leaves and stuff. But there was some plant, I can't remember what it was, that if it had mold or mildew, the soapy water cured it. Huh. (laughs) I I think that would be a good thread of permies. I don't know if we have a thread like that of permies. So like if I'm going to try and collect my soapy dishwater, what's the soap I can use? I mean, I don't think I'd want to put soapy dishwater on my edibles, but you know, if you've got like a some conifers, or if you've got um, you know even an oak tree or something like that, and then uh, um, yeah, that would be, those would be great places. Or lawn, put it in your lawn. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, soap does kill um, flea eggs. <laughs> so, and, and a lot of fleas reproduce in the lawn. So if you're, you know, I've heard it recommended to wash your car on the lawn or, you know, dump your dishwater on the lawn to kill those flea eggs. It won't kill the adult fleas, but the soap will kill flea eggs, which is cool. All right. I think we're done with this chapter. Yeah, this was a good one. Yeah. What's the next one? Plants for many uses. Oh, that's good. Anything else? We talked a long time. That's a good one. All right. You know, I, I, in the podcast, I was kind of thinking the other day about how I don't mention this enough, but one, you know, a couple of quick notes. One is, uh, in fact, recently we've run into a bunch of people that are not currently, they're like saying, oh, I love your stuff, I love your stuff, I just you know, eat it all. So are you on my daily-ish email list? What's that? So get signed up for my daily-ish email, and if you just go to permies.com, it's right there at the top. Um, and, and so it's easy to find, easy to get signed up for. Um, and uh, so make sure you're set up with that. Uh, the other thing is, is like, um, um, you know, the, the podcasts and the videos and the articles, well, these are really, they start out with the forums. I mean, the forums are really where it's all happening. The, for, the forums are, are the stuff. So, um, uh, and on top of that, uh, uh, periodically, Toby comes out and visits with us at the forums. And so, um, uh, you know, if, if you ever get something where it's very Toby-esque or you really, and you want to make sure then you can uh, contact me, I'll contact Toby, and, and we'll uh, I'll ask him to, to pop in. Um, Toby's really cool about that kind of thing, so, you know, we don't want to you know do it every day, but, you know, once a month, I'm sure Toby would be glad to come out and, and answer a, a question that's directed at him or, or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, I think so many people are so knowledgeable about Toby's stuff that if you ask a Toby question, you'll be able to get the complete answer and we won't have to bother Toby um, but if you feel like it's not getting a complete enough answer or if you just want Toby to validate what's already been said we can we can arrange that but the forums the forums are the place that pictures that one thread was so awesome and and in fact just in this podcast alone we've covered probably at least a half dozen threads and um, and there's always new stuff coming up that we never talk about in the podcast never present in a video and it never makes never gets any other attention but excellent permaculture information so really it's the place to to be checking things out so anything else all right on to the next chapter yes 